Uh, good morning. It is so good to be with you here in the room and you online as we celebrate Easter and the resurrection. This is truly remarkable just to be together and to be able to sing and gather and proclaim this good news. I don't know what you were expecting from our time together this morning, but I would hazard a guess that you didn't get up and put on your Easter finery, if you're here in the room, and come to church expecting disruption. Chances are you were anticipating something like gentle uplift and encouragement before a pleasant lunch, not looking forward to being troubled or bewildered, not expecting news that would alarm or unsettle you. Yet this is precisely where the earliest story of Easter begins and ends. A reading just now read by Sarah from the Gospel of Mark chapter 16 begins and ends with disorientation, alarm, confusion. The whole thing has a dominant tone of fear. It's not the Easter warm fuzzies we may have expected to brunch upon today. Our reading tells the story of disruption. And we've had a year of disruption. I trust I don't have to illustrate that for us. Just look around at the room. Much of that disruption has been very difficult. Perhaps you've had quite enough of it. And you come this morning in need of a word of comfort, encouragement, and hope. If so, you have come to the right place. There is all that and more in the news of Jesus' resurrection. But if this sermon has a thesis statement, it would be this. We cannot access the joy, the hope, and comfort of the resurrection unless we experience first its disruptive power. In order to know the joy and comfort of Christ's risen presence, we must first tremble alongside the three women in our reading. We must allow the absolute strangeness of what they witnessed to pierce the familiarity with which we come this Easter morning. We must feel and experience Easter as a glorious disruption that we might receive the full measure of joy, comfort, and hope it brings. In order to kind of flesh out that thesis statement, I want to guide us through three headings this morning. First, profound weirdness. Second, the profound person. And third, a profound decision. So first, profound weirdness. Mark Zuckerberg famously said, move fast and break stuff. Made that the motto of Facebook. And that has been the rallying cry of much technological and business innovation over the past decade. Whether it's been Uber or Tesla, or even the much maligned and seemingly appearing overnight presence of those e-scooters that dominated Austin years ago. The goal has been creative disruption. Disrupt the market, seek innovation, Create confusion even, mix things up, that something better, read, more profitable, might emerge. In the barest of terms, our reading this morning might be summarized like the start of a strange joke. Three women entered a cemetery. Three women went to pay their respects and came back Christians. Three women entered a tomb and returned in silence, believing the strangest kind of things. The profound weirdness of what they encounter has this certain comedic quality. It's disruptive. It might make us guffaw. 
with the benefit of time and distance, we come to Easter morning with some preparation, some expectation. The empty tomb does not surprise us. But these three women were caught totally unaware. The idea of bringing spices to anoint the corpse, the rumination they have about rolling the stone away, all of that communicates an expectation of a very sad but predictable morning, managing the disappointing but wholly ordinary reality of human death. That these three women would undertake to do this, especially considering that Jesus had publicly died a criminal, suggests a level of devotion to him, commitment and care. They had journeyed with him from Galilee. They'd been with him along the way through his ministry. They knew him. They witnessed his life, heard his teaching. They loved him. Considering all that, we might ask, why were they surprised? Why were they caught unaware? Multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus predicts his death and hints at the resurrection. They'd seen him do miraculous, remarkable things, feeding the 5,000, stilling the storm. They loved him, and they would have longed for him to not have died. Why would they be caught so off guard, so bewildered and terrified? Even the most discouraging and difficult realities, if they unfold in an expected, predictable manner, can be accepted, even in a way embraced. This truth is the basis of that famous proverb about the frog in the slowly boiled pot of water. That's been disproven, actually, by scientists recently. The frog will jump out of water. But the concept known as creeping normality is one we can all identify with. Peter Ho, the chief civil servant in Singapore, wrote about this in relation to the flooding in that city-state related to climate change. He said, things get a little bit worse each year than the year before, but not bad enough for anyone to notice or bad enough to make any change. We can relate to that, I suspect, the unfinished house project that we've simply come to live with in our house. That relational pattern or dynamic that's unhealthy, but easier to accept than it is to change. In my own life, the impulse I have to resist even the most positive of changes if they disrupt my sense of equilibrium. Why are these three women devoted to Jesus, having heard him speak of resurrection, so alarmed and struck with terror? I suspect it is that the realities, the realities of death, the realities of empire, the cold, hard facts of life were immovably fixed in their minds, like that stone in front of the grave, such that they could conceive of nothing overcoming these realities. These were the foundational, non-negotiable pieces of their mental landscape. Nothing in their imaginations allowed for the notion that Jesus might die upon the cross at the hands of the Roman superpower and be returned to them. As welcome as such a notion might have been, it simply could not occur to them. Like these three women, we come today with our own fixed, non-negotiable mental landscapes, with our sophisticated presuppositions regarding what is possible and probable, with our sense of what God is capable of doing and not doing, with our sense of what can be changed and what must simply be accepted and endured. 
And the truth of the resurrection upends so much of that, destabilizes, disrupts us. It is profoundly weird. Like these three women, we come ready, perhaps with our strategies of managing the realities of brokenness and evil in the world and in ourselves. But this morning is a reminder that God's intention is not to paper over or seal up what is broken, but to disrupt, to heal, to raise up. God's intention is glorious disruption. I once had the unusual privilege of working alongside someone who denied that the lunar landings ever took place, denied the Apollo missions ever occurred. I assure you this person was a normally functioning adult, intelligent, gainfully employed. But I remember when the topic came up, as it inevitably did, their objection to the possibility of a person walking on the moon was confoundingly simple. There's no air up there, man. No way to breathe. Humans can't live in space. And no matter the evidence that could be produced, the pictures of spacesuits and breathing apparatuses, their certainty remained fixed, stubbornly so. Their presuppositions were unmoved. At some level, there was just this settled sense of expectation and predictability that refused to be disrupted, to be troubled by this extraordinary event. It was easier at some level, more reassuring to remain unmoved. There is a certain safety in the belief that the tomb is sealed, that the stone is fixed in place, because to accept that God did such a strange and wondrous thing, to believe that the tomb was empty, that the Spirit of God gave new life to Jesus and raised him up, means that the world we inhabit is much more profoundly weird than we might like to allow, that it's open to the hand and working of God shaped by the right hand of the Lord who does extraordinary, mighty things, as we just prayed, who overcomes the fixed and immovable powers of this world and undoes the work of death. To accept the reality of the empty tomb, the resurrection, is to accept that the world and we ourselves, held captive to sin and death, could be something more. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who is unable to walk. And he asks him the audacious, borderline offensive question, do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? This question needs to be asked of us from time to time. Because there is a safety and comfort in the acceptance of our lives and our world as they are. In our calcified disappointments, in our codependencies, in our exhaustion, it is often easier to remain in our unwell status quo and compromise with sin in quiet despair, to manage and medicate these realities. But the resurrection of Jesus and the occasion of this Easter morning is a reminder that God's intention is something more, more for you, more for his creation. His intention is the disruption of what is, that there might be something new, new heavens, new earth, new humanity in the likeness of his son. Perhaps the invitation of this day, April 4th, 2021, 
is to allow the hope of Easter to trouble the water of our lives, to disrupt our expectations, to destabilize us. In light of the glorious disruption that is Jesus' resurrection, to hope for more, to interrogate our intuitions that would reject the weirdness of what this day marks, to doubt our doubts, to allow the profound weirdness, the profound goodness of this day to shape our expectations, our sense of what is possible for ourselves, for one another, and for our world. Of course, the profound weirdness of this day is not simply about the possibility of hope in generic terms. The tomb that is empty is specifically the tomb of Jesus, the resurrection of this particular man, the profound person. And this is the second way that Easter may disrupt us. For the three women in our reading in Mark and for Peter in Acts chapter 10, the Jesus whom they'd walked with, the, who they knew, is revealed in this day in Easter is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. He's more than they expected, the profound person. Part of what takes place in the resurrection is God's divine endorsement of Jesus. The living God raises Jesus and declares, in so doing, this one is with me. Following through on the pronouncements at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus is elevated, rendered singular and unique in Easter. That language of beloved son comes from Psalm 2, and, and that psalm celebrates God's singular anointed king, his one beloved son, through whom the nations of the world, as they are submitted to him, experience peace and flourishing, through whom all the earth receives its peace. The resurrection connects that identity in the clearest possible terms with the person of Jesus. I grew up in Vancouver, and the actor Ryan Reynolds is from Vancouver, really famous actor. Someone I grew up with was actually like pretty close friends through their school years with Ryan Reynolds. Like I said, they're all from Vancouver. And this person commented once that it was impossible for them to take seriously Ryan Reynolds as an actor. They just like didn't think he was a good actor. I don't know what your opinion of this matter is. It doesn't really matter. And they, but their interesting thing was they commented it wasn't because of anything related to Ryan Reynolds' performance or skill as an actor, but simply because it was so disorienting for them to connect the scrawny high school kid they went to McDonald's with to this chiseled movie star they saw on screen. They just could not connect the Ryan they knew with, with what they saw on film. It was bewildering. What is revealed in the resurrection, in the empty tomb, is that the Jesus that these women had known, the one with whom they'd talked and joked, with whom they'd eaten, the one whom they'd hugged, whose face and voice, whose smell they'd known through the years, was something more than they could comprehend, was more than a friend, more than a teacher, more than a guide or leader, so much more. And this connection, you can imagine, would have been so disorienting to make. Perhaps we can identify with that difficulty. The resurrection, the God's divine endorsement of Jesus is a disruptive thing for us, it means that his life, his teaching belong in this specific category. They're singular. 
requiring unique consideration. Easter is this clear declaration of Jesus' unique place in all of history. And that's incredibly disruptive in a context like our own, where we're aware of various religious traditions, competing meta-narratives, where a multitude of options exist when it comes to teacher or guide or venerated example. And what the empty tomb of Mark 16 testifies to is profoundly disruptive to the ways we often seek to navigate that reality peaceably. It's unsettling. It's offensive. The potentially offensive, disruptive news of resurrection could be summarized like this. Here. Here is the story we all must understand, accept as true, and live by. Here is the one person at the heart of everything. No matter what else you have believed, no matter what other path you have walked, no matter whom else you have followed, you need to adopt this story as the guiding narrative of your life. You need to adopt this path as your way of life. You need to adopt this person as the center of your life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not this beautiful symbol of springtime renewal or a generic claim regarding hope and love winning out. It is a claim about the singular place of this one person and the claim he in turn makes over each and every inch of creation, over each and every human life, yours and mine. Whether you would consider yourself this morning to have followed him for many years now, or you're simply here this morning because it was a thing to do with no allegiance to him, today, this day, is the day to be disrupted in our lives, to consider the person of Jesus freshly again, God's singular person, and to ask whether his place in our lives reflects the reality of the empty tomb is the one who is the center, at the center of our existence? That is a disruptive question. And it leads us to our third and final category, a profound decision. I don't think Americans are familiar with this poem. Nick didn't think so this morning when I asked him. But arguably the most popular poem in Canadian history is In Flanders Fields. Do, do people know that poem? Blank stares, a few nods. This poem is very, very famous in Canada, I assure you. You'll just have to take my word for it. <laughs> it was written by John McRae in the First World War, World War and, who was, and he was killed shortly after writing the poem. And the poem is a meditation on the cost of war, reflecting on the poppies, the red poppies that grow in Flanders Field. The poem's read every year on or around November 11th. It's part of school curriculum. I had to recite and memorize it countless times as a child. And it's written from the perspective of those who died in battle. And there's this sobering, chilling moment in the poem's final stanza where the address shifts and it becomes direct. And the stanza reads, to you, from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders Field. As an eight-year-old boy, I remember being terrified by those words. All of a sudden, this was no longer something I was half-memorizing for school assembly on Tuesday. I was being addressed, called out, named, implicated, 
from across the grave. It was sobering. We know very little regarding the women in our reading. Mary and Salome are described here and elsewhere uh, in the Gospels as mothers, mothers of other disciples. That's really all we know. Mary Magdalene, we know a little bit more of her. She was this person who was demonized, oppressed, and healed graciously by Jesus. She's equated with the sinful woman who appears nameless in the Gospels quite often. But beyond that, we don't know very much about them. And for our purposes this morning, that's kind of the point. They are wholly ordinary people. They're like us in their obscurity and in their fears and failings. It seems to me that one of the primary ways we might avoid the disruption of this day is to conceive of the news of Easter as being for someone else, for people of a different quality or class, people of unique piety and moral seriousness, the kind of people who believe that sort of thing, not like us. We can go on as we were. The empty tomb and its implications, the centrality of Jesus, all of that is for someone else. But the inclusion of these three women here, and the mention of Peter in verse 7, fresh off shipwrecking his life, the shame of his denial of Jesus, is this clear message. You and I, in our obscurity, in our shame, are implicated, are included, are being called forth, addressed. Both the glorious disruption and the joy, the comfort, the hope, the forgiveness of sins that Christ's resurrection brings are for us. Whoever we might be, whatever shipwreck we've made of our lives, whatever shame we might carry, today, in this place, is the day of salvation, a day for choosing. For the first time, or yet again in a deeper way, Today is a day to make him who is the center, the center of our lives. To make his path invariably leading to the cross and empty tomb our own. To turn from any other way, any other story, any other person, and make Jesus, the risen one, our Lord. Today's a day to receive him who was raised. To receive him as one who goes before us. That his future his righteousness, his indestructible life in God might be our own. This Easter, do not go away unchanged, undisrupted, undecided with regard to this news. Do not go away fixed and unmoved. Name him, Jesus, the profound person, as your Savior, as your Lord choose this day. The Gospel of Mark ends in a very odd way. It ends, most scholars agree, with the final words of our reading this morning in verse 8. The women said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Not exactly a crowd pleaser. Most scholars agree that this could not have been the original ending and that the verses you may be familiar with in your Bible were likely not original. But most scholars think there was this further resolution, like what we find in the other Gospels that Mark had in mind, that it didn't end here with this fear. There was a creative resolution for these three women, 
the fullness of hope, comfort, and joy out of the disruption of the empty tomb. That is where the story ends for those in Christ. Not in disruption, but resolution. In abundant life here and now, and in the new earth and new heavens. But this interrupted ending, this disrupted story, I think has a happy effect for us. Like those closing lines in in Flanders Field, this ending passes the torch to us. It places us before the undeniable reality of the empty tomb. It sets before us the hope of God's radical intervention in the world and in our lives. It confronts us with Jesus' centrality. What will we do? To paraphrase the poem, to adapt its charge for us, let us not break faith with him who died and does not sleep, who died and rose again, whose tomb is empty, who goes before us, and in whose glorious disruptive presence there is hope, joy, comfort, and life eternal. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.